This is The Guardian. Water. We can't get very far without it. That's why if humans are to venture further into space, we're going to need to source it off-planet. And the first stop? Our nearest neighbour, of course. When we first set foot on the moon, we thought it was a dry and barren place. But a recent discovery by researchers suggested, in fact, water could be all over the lunar surface, hiding in plain sight. So where is all this water? How could we extract it? And what does it mean for the future of space exploration? I'm The Guardian science editor, Ian Sample, and this is Science Weekly. Mahesh Anand, you're Professor of Planetary Science and Exploration at the Open University, and you've recently published a study about potentially finding billions of tonnes of water locked up on the moon. Before we get to that, it'd be good to understand a bit more about the sort of history of water on the moon. When, when did we first find evidence or hints that there was water up there? The evidence or the hints, if you want to call it, of water on the moon has been there for quite some time, even before the Apollo days when telescopic observations have been used to suggest that there might be water ice present in the permanently shaded craters near the lunar poles. But of course, there was no direct test for those. And fast forward Apollo era, we uh, sent humans to the moon, they collected samples, the samples were returned to the Earth, they were analyzed. And of course, the first thing people wanted to know is that, was there any water in those lunar samples? The consensus emerged, uh, given whatever technology they had at that time, that actually there wasn't any water. So the moon basically was an anhydrous body, but it's still the possibility of water ice in the polar craters remain unaddressed because nobody even peered inside those craters until the 1990s, when actually NASA sent a couple of missions that orbited the moon and they had some very sensitive instruments on board. And uh, they did reveal that actually there was a distinct possibility that there was water ice hidden inside these permanently shaded craters. So everybody started thinking that, okay, if we return to the moon and if we can access those polar regions, we might be able to access this water. And how long have you been working on this issue yourself? I've been working on this topic for now almost 15 years. And I have been actually reanalyzing some of the uh, Apollo samples that were originally worked on in the 1960s and 1970s. And about 12 years ago, what we found was actually there was water present in these lunar samples, but they couldn't have been detected in those early times because we didn't have the sensitive instruments that we have today. And at the same time, the Chandrayaan-1 mission, which was carrying a NASA instrument, detected the presence of a very thin layer of water at the lunar surface, which is only a few micrometers thick all over the lunar surface. And these two new discoveries, you know, sort of changed the worldview. And since then, we have been actually, you know, reanalyzing the samples, analyzing new samples. And this is what actually brought us to the latest discovery that we are here to discuss. And this latest study, it really is intriguing. Tell us what you were looking at. 
So um, Chinese uh, National Space Agency, uh, they sent a mission to the moon in 2020 called Chang'e 5, and it scooped up material and collected some material through drilling in the first meter of the lunar surface and brought about 1.7 kilograms of new lunar samples back to Earth. And that is what our scientists have been busy analyzing since then. And our particular study looked at things called glossy beads, and they form when actually any impactor hits the surface of the moon. It creates a melting of the material, whatever it hits, and then that material, when it cools down, it cools down as glossy beads. And give us a sense of what this material looks like. I mean, is it like a fine powder or, you know, can you see these glass beads within the sort of finer lunar soil? Mostly these beads are in the size range of something like the width of a single human hair. But if you use a simple binocular microscope, you would be able to see them. And then imagine these are really the miniaturized, you know, marbles that, <laughs> that children play with. And what did you find when you looked at those beads? So one of the things that actually we were curious to understand was if there was any hydrogen in these glass beads. And hydrogen is essentially a proxy for water, because as we know, the water is nothing but hydrogen combined with oxygen. If we detected any hydrogen, we were interested in knowing how was that hydrogen distributed in this sphere, because these glass beads, they are open to the exosphere of the moon. So if there was any water near the surface, you would expect that water to be more easily released and lost compared to the water that is locked away in its center. So this is the most fascinating observation that we made. Contrary to the original expectation, there was much more water present near the rim compared to the core. In fact, core had almost no water. And not only that, we also found the isotopic composition of that water. And that suggested that the water that we were seeing near the rims of these um, glass beads, they had isotopic composition exactly like what one would expect in solar wind. Solar wind is actually constantly delivering a stream of protons to the lunar surface which has a certain isotopic composition. And this is exactly what we are finding in these glass beads. So if we started putting those two different bits of information together and came up with the uh, interpretation that it is actually the solar wind hydrogen that makes its way into these glass beads when they are cooling down after an impact event. And that's what actually is producing water. So the mechanism here is that you'll have a meteoroid will come slamming into the moon. And as we know, the moon is absolutely peppered in craters. So a meteoroid will come slamming into the moon. We'll, we'll, we'll kick up a lot of these molten droplets. You'll get a shower of these molten droplets. And the, the solar wind, as you were saying, these high energy particles coming from the sun, a lot of those are hydrogen nuclei, the protons you talked about. They're then hitting these molten droplets, interacting with oxygen there and creating water in the droplets. Exactly. This is another fascinating thing. The impact process is universal all over the moon. The solar wind is universally arriving everywhere on the moon almost, and it's happening all the time. It has been happening over the four and a half billion years of moon's history. So yes, we are talking about very small beads. Yes, we are talking about relatively small quantities of water. You know, we are often talking about hundreds of parts per million, at most a thousand parts per million. But when you actually calculate 
how much of these type of beads would have been produced over four and a half billion years all over the lunar surface, the potential for producing water is not insignificant. We estimated that there is probably at a lower bound 100 million tons of water that could be locked up in these glass beads. That's the lower estimate. The higher estimate would be two or three orders of magnitude more. So we are then going into billions. So why is it so exciting to find a source of water on the moon? You know, the water is considered as the most critical commodity, perhaps. If we were to actually stay at the lunar surface, for example, for extended periods of time, we would need water for a variety of processes. So in that context, if you can actually find a source of water where you are going, you then reduce the cost of carrying the mass with you right from the beginning, but also you de-risk your mission because you know that you're you know, going to survive and you're not going to run out of water. How difficult do you think it would be to get the water out of these glass beads? Is it going to be some sort of complex um, sort of engineering or, or, or chemical process? So just to put it in context, uh, we have also done experiments where we have heated lunar soil to temperatures of up to 1,000 degrees Celsius. Well, that's a quite a high temperature. And the idea there was to liberate oxygen that is locked in this lunar material and combine it with hydrogen to produce our water or just extract oxygen to make it a breathable oxygen. Now, what this discovery shows is that potentially we could liberate the water from these impact glass beads at much, much lower temperatures, you know, 100 degrees, 200 degrees Celsius. So it would be much easier to potentially process the lunar beads compared to, let's say, the lunar rock itself. Do you think that takes us a step closer to being able to build and sustain these kinds of moon bases that, that agencies like NASA and the European Space Agency are looking at? Does it even bring us a step closer to sort of living on the moon, having, having colonies there? That's exactly what I hope will happen. In fact, a few years ago in 2019, at the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11, I put together a summer science exhibition at the Ross Society and I called it Living on the Moon. And I was trying to be a bit provocative because I wanted to challenge the community to come together and think about what it would be like to live on the moon, what would be required in terms of developing technologies and resources. But what I didn't mean uh, that we would be seeing hundreds of thousands or millions of people from Earth going to the moon. What it meant was you have researchers, explorers, likely to go to the moon and stay there or need to stay there for extended periods of time. And in order to do that, we need to utilize the local resources in a responsible manner to then further our scientific understanding to make further steps into the deepest part of the solar system. We haven't been that great on earth at sort of controlling how we exploit the resources on this planet i'm wondering what you think about the future when we're going to have to consider this for lunar bases and such like whether we're going to need controls or regulations in place for for making sure that the resources there are used responsibly and the, and, and, and sort of equitably so one of the things that i am very passionate about is actually developing our understanding of utilizing resources in such a way that you end up with almost zero waste. 
because this space is difficult, because this space exploration is very challenging, there will be a push, a desire, and in fact necessity that you develop methods, processes, and techniques that utilizes everything that you can get on site and you do it in a responsible and sustainable manner and you don't, you know, do the things that we have done on Earth. And you can't help wondering whether this kind of effort being done now in preparation for going to the moon might then actually go full circle and come back to help us deal with things better on Earth. Totally. You're absolutely right. It has to come in full circle. And anything we learn on Earth, we take it to space. But whatever we learn in space must be brought back to Earth to the benefit of the society. There's obviously still loads we don't know about the moon, despite it's the only one we've only celestial object we've been to, of course. But the work that's coming in the sort of you know the future decades that will be based on the moon are there key questions that scientists are going to be sort of looking to answer with that, or is that really going to be more about learning how to work and how to operate on um, a sort of off-world body, if you like? So I think it will be a combination of both of those. So the bigger question always is to find out our place in the solar system, in the universe. And there are places on the moon where actually you could address many of those questions. For example, you could go on the far side of the moon uh, where there is a zone called radio quiet zone from where actually you can observe parts of the universe that you just cannot observe from the Earth. And so there has been a lot of interest among astronomers to actually set up an observatory for furthering their knowledge. Similarly, these polar craters, because they have been under permanent shadow for almost entirety of their geological history, they could have been actually collecting information through material that is actually falling in. Maybe it is being delivered by comets, maybe it is delivered by asteroids. Those material could have the key information about how actually life itself arose on Earth, you know, some billions of years ago. Mahesh, thanks so much for coming on and talking us through all this. No problem. Thanks. Thanks again to Professor Mahesh Anand. You can read my article about this discovery on theguardian.com. Before you go, this year, as part of The Guardian's partnership with Glastonbury Festival, we've got 10 pairs of tickets to give away, free to worthy winners. If you know someone who deserves a chance to experience the world's best festival, visit theguardian.com forward slash worthy hyphen winners to nominate them for a weekend of arts, culture and music. Make sure to cast your nominations by Saturday the 1st of April. Only UK residents who are 18 and over can apply. And that's it for today. The producer was Ned Carter-Miles. The sound design was by Tony Onachuku. And the executive producer was Ellie Bury. We'll be back on Tuesday. See you then. This is The Guardian.